So today we have a lecture on kind of a single thing, uh, natural family planning and contraception, which is therefore a very specific focus. And the key thing I'm wanting you to take away from this lecture is the difference between natural family planning and contraception. Because lots of our people and even lots of seminarians kind of think, well, is there really a difference? Um, so let's start with some basics in terms of remembering where this is all going. Marriage, what is marriage about? We've noted how marriage has an ordering to children. I'm going to note the Latin word munus as in mission. There is a mission given in marriage to be fruitful, to, to have children. But um, responsible parenthood. So the number of children you're seeking to have should be responsible. So therefore, the church talks about spacing the number of children. Um, and we can see that first articulated in an encyclical, um, Pius IX in 1930. So I'm going to make the point, this isn't just a post-Vatican II invention. Isn't that 11? Wasn't he 11, 1930? Yeah, sorry, he said 9. Oh, sorry, okay, okay. Yeah, so 11. Okay. Um, the church talks, we'll note the different Latin words used, but just reasons need to be in place for spacing children. We'll note the church described these as physical reasons, economic reasons, psychological reasons, social reasons. That's the list Paul VI gives in Humanae Vitae, which is quite a broad range of reasons. Back to the title of this lecture, Contrasting Natural Family Planning with Contraception. One of the key points I want you to take from this lecture is that they have the same intention to not have a child. And that's not necessarily a problem, to not want to have a child to say at this moment in our marriage it is not the right time to have another child. To intend not to have your child 
is not inherently a problem. But they differ in the means to that end. We're going to note, as we've already touched on uh, when we were looking at John Paul II's various teachings, um, what's involved in natural family planning as distinct from contraception. At a practical level, it involves self-observation, the woman monitoring her symptoms. It involves charting those. But it involves something that the man and woman have to do together, a shared responsibility. It's not just her taking the pill and the man not needing to know whether that's the case or not. Um, because together, they engage in periodic continence. But there are times when they refrain from the marital act and there are times when they embrace from it. That's something they have to do together. You note that that has an effect or a series of effects that it leads to a growth in self-mastery It involves dialogue and communication. Kind of the biggest things that go wrong in a marriage is when the couple at some level are not communicating with each other. This is requiring a degree of communication um, about her fertility, about her body. Requires the man who, more than the woman, the man is kind of inclined to just be inconsiderate and unobservant. He's needing to have this awareness of his, his wife and her body and what she's cycling through. And with this, a reciprocal respect. One other key takeaway from this lecture is going to be a very technical point. A Latin phrase, per se destinatus. Um, so when the various church documents talk about what must continue to be the case in the marital act and what is thwarted um, in the act of contraception is per se destinatus. Now the point I want you to make grasp is that that is not the same thing as saying open. The open is a subjective attitude
whereas per se destinatus is an objective reality. Something that has been done or hasn't been done to the act. Something that has been changed or not changed in the act. And a lot of the early translations of Humana Vitae um, at a popular level used the word open and that caused a lot of bad catechesis even among good priests um, sometimes telling people well you need to be open to life but kind of phrasing it as if it was a subjective attitude kind of implying that natural family planning is okay because it doesn't really work and because it doesn't really work and you might end up with a child anyway therefore you're still kind of open to life um, i have heard sermons to that effect um, as well as hearing seminarians say words to that effect um, that is not what the church is teaching Okay, and then the background to all of this, the unitive and procreative, that these two things are the kind of magic word in Humana Vitae, these two things are inseparable, these two meanings. And natural family planning does not forcefully separate them. Contraception does. So that in summary is what we're looking at today. And how many of you would say you were already familiar with some of this? The mistranslation question, how many of you had previously heard of this as an issue? None of you, okay, which means it's... That's exactly what we're gonna cover in this lecture and in the subsequent lecture. The key thing for today that I want you to grasp is it does not mean open in a subjective attitude. Uh, so we're having to use Latin because sometimes there's a technical thing the church is saying um, and there's all kinds of ways we can think we're easily putting it well we mistranslate things and we think ah so we've explained it to people but actually what we've said just is actually something very different and there's a lot of running around after the council with that so people attacking the church on this point but then sometimes misdefending the church in defending a position that actually wasn't the church's position. This is one of the things uh, Janet Smith in her big fat book, Humana Vitae, A Generation Later, um, possibly the first to articulate this point at some length. Um, about the time she was doing that, you can see new translations um, coming out, correcting this. Um, 
So that's the, the basic point. So page one of my notes, starting as I've started on the top here, what is marriage about and children? So first I note children as the mission of marriage. There's this technical word, munus. Um, I then quote the catechism saying, fecundity is a gift, which is you know, very opposite to how lots of people today think of it. Daniel, could you read that first quote from the catechism? So that's before I, we talk about how it's acceptable to be spacing children, not wanting children, different means to that end. Uh, we need to have a, a general awareness. Marriage is about children. It has this mission towards children. But responsible parenthood. So I say here, a couple do not need to be constantly seeking to have a child. I say there are many grounds for seeking to delay having a child, maybe indefinitely. So they are responsible for sharing in the creative power and fatherhood of God, quoting the Catechism. Uh, David, could you read that next quote from the Catechism? Okay, now we're going to talk about what does that word space mean in a minute, um, but that's the basic point that actually parents should, that they have a duty to be planning this in some sense, to space their children. Now before we look at, in a sense, what that means, I've got here a section what I've called, is responsible parenthood a post-conciliar deviation from the tradition? And I note some tradie groups doubt natural family planning, periodic abstinence, and responsible parenthood. Or they refer to it only with extreme skepticism. Um, and I then have, so I've quoted there from um, the website of the American district of the Society of Pius X. Just to remind ourselves, Pius X Society, they are not excommunicated anymore. They are in communion with the church but they are canonically irregular, or rather their priests are canonically irregular. So this summer when I was in Alaska, um, randomly at a, a beach, our youth group encountered another big youth group um, with these three priests in cassocks. Um, they were Pius the Tenth, and I was having to think, okay, what is this engagement here? Um, it's not an ecumenical encounter. So 10 years ago, it would have been an ecumenical encounter, a group that was not in communion with us. Um, and we should be brotherly in an ecumenical encounter. This is more than that, but they aren't canonically regular. So it is something a little awkward. Um, is this father kind of, in what sense are you father? Um, yes, but canonically irregular. 
anyway, just, um, but still some slightly off-beam opinions within that grouping. Among them on the question, so this article I quote, the problem of natural family planning. Um, Christopher, could you read that block quote for us? So, um, almost comic, some of the things there, in terms of what's wrong with this person, the NFP counselor, that she might even be a woman. Um, that, uh, uh, um, but taking exception to the thought, you know, in all of the church structures, there's now arisen this post, the NFP counselor, um, and objecting to the notion that it's seen as something normative, that your local parish uh, should have such a person that the training in these methods should be so normal that it should be that available and out there as an option. Um, so it's not disputed as a theoretical option, extraordinary for extreme cases, um, but that's how it's being regarded. Another voice, Michael Voris, um, don't know how many of you listened to him on The Vortex, yeah, the Church of Millicent. Uh, over the years, he has said an awful lot of sensible things. He's been on many levels a great force for good, um, but he's not infallible. Uh, so he has, among his various uh, pieces, one called The Scandal of NFP. Uh, a couple quotes there I put. Um, NFP is a dispensation from what has been taught for centuries by the church. He says the default is seeking a large family. So though Michael Boris reluctantly concedes that there are some serious reasons for NFP. Say, however, tradie groups never footnote old preconciliar manuals to justify their position because the preconciliar manuals don't justify their position. Pope's Pius the 11th and 12th articulated this teaching. It wasn't invented by Paul VI. Now, we might in a sense come back to that critique after we look at the question of just reasons. Are lots of couples in the parish, their critique is saying extraordinary or extreme situations, in some sense is the way it is being used in parishes not for just reasons, but just for any reasons. That isn't what the church is saying. Um, so what is the church saying? Over the page, page two, um, responsible parenthood, what the church teaches. 
So not casual reasons, but just reasons. Justie cause. Uh, the church gives principles, but, and here I'm quoting Janet Smith, um, the church gives principles, but the church is careful not to define very precisely what would warrant postponing having a child and leaves the decision to the spouses. Um, so before we move on, just to note what she is arguing there, uh, I'm not sure everyone would go quite along with her. Um, she's saying that the church has been kind of deliberately vague here, that there's some things that are very precise and the church gives very precise answers. There's some things that aren't um, and that the church gives kind of pointers, but she says leaves it to the decision of the spouses. So the word conscience that we know is widely abused in recent decades. Um, clearly what she's saying is that this is actually a place where conscience does come into play. That it's not your local pastor who decides for you, who says, no, I decide you need to be having a child now. No, this is the couple themselves. Um, they are the ones who decide. So this said, Humana Vitae speaks not so much of limiting family size as of, as of spacing offspring. And see, this phrase is, or here I'm quoting here rather, this phrase is important. So the Latin is intervallandi, spacing. Here I'm quoting her again, uh, the, a question of justice. It's an interesting way of phrasing this, justice. What is justice? Justice is what you owe to another. In this case, justice is what the married couple owe to. Who do they owe it to? Spouses should ask, would it be just to God, to your marriage, to the children we already have, to the child we might have, and even to society, were we to have a child or another child at this time? She's saying a couple need to have this as a question in their mind. What do we owe? Do actually we owe it to society? Society needs more good, well brought up, sensible children. Do we owe it to society to have more children? The little Jimmy, he has no brothers and sisters. Is he to be like those little Chinese one-child products that they only, they're all growing up alone? Um, do we owe it to little Jimmy to have another child or seek to have another child for him? Or we've already got nine children. Do we actually owe it to that nine to not financially um, and physically space-wise in the house add yet another child? A question of justice. Think on. I say the ancient tradition leading into the 20th century, what did, I say even with primitive biology, couples knew that they could avoid further children by avoiding sex. Say amidst primitive biology, however, we find little theological reflection on this matter. So Prior to the 20th century, you just don't read this commented on at all, but kind of everyone would have had an awareness. 
you can just avoid engaging in the marital act. See, 20th century biology grew in awareness of the fertile-infertile days of a woman's cycle. A thing originally called the rhythm method of periodic abstinence restricted sex to the days of the month a woman was thought to be infertile. And say the rhythm method was biologically primitive and that it assumed a regular 28-day cycle. It was thus often inaccurate and sometimes cynically called Vatican Roulette. Have you heard this phrase, Vatican Roulette? No. Um, so obviously you're roulette, you're rolling a dice, and is it going to be black? Is it going to be white? Um, you don't really know. Uh, and it's spinning around. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that, that's totally different then. Okay. For those of us who don't spend our time. Uh, um, so obviously a term of mocking abuse of um, the Vatican position. And this is a term, um, build up to Vatican II, early years of the 60s and whatever, also a reaction against Humana Vitae, saying, well, it's just so random and unpredictable um, and yet, I do know uh, anecdotal comments from, shall we say, older women, uh, now past, of this era, who, you know, if you had a regular cycle, and some women do have a very regular cycle, even this primitive method they could follow pretty accurately. But the church's position isn't rooted in the primitiveness of that particular biology. So now biological markers, which we'll come on to, can be much more accurate in knowing which days is she fertile, which days is she infertile, um, in terms of seeking to space those births. But 20th century, that is kind of the progression. So a lot within the church today of the mocking voices are still somehow in the notion of Vatican roulette, that really this just is not reliable. Um, but back then, you know, some ability to space births, even with the unreliable biology. Um, what does the church say in that context? So Pius the Twelfth, um, so Cassidy Canubi, Pius the Eleventh, articulates this as a rationale. Um, Pius the Eleventh, uh, sorry, Pius the Twelfth, and I note that Pius the Eleventh says something similar. Yeah, so Pius, 1951, before the ca Wicked Council, um, says David, could you read for us? There are serious motives, such as those often mentioned in the so-called medical, eugenic, economic, and social indications, that can exempt for a long time, perhaps even during the whole duration of the marriage, from the positive and obligatory carrying out of the act. From this, it follows that observing the non-fertile periods alone can be lawful. Uh, and before we comment on it, Paul the Sixth kind of rephrasing of that, Tyler. With regard to physical, economic, psychological, and social conditions, responsible parenthood is exercised by those who prudently and generously decide to have more children, and by those who, for serious reasons and with due respect to moral precepts, decide not to have additional children for either a certain or an indefinite. 
And in four bullet points, I summarize physical, economic, psychological, social conditions. So comments here on what's being said? Were there any uh, church documents or teachings on family size and responsible parenthood before Cassidy Kenobi? Uh, as far, I don't think so. I think Cassie Kenobi is the first time. So if it's a deviation in the tradition, it happened in 1931. So 1928, or was it 1930, the Lambeth Council, the Anglicans, they said contraception is acceptable. First time ever in the Christian tradition, a group of Christians say contraception is acceptable. Such a step that the secular newspaper in England, The Times, condemned it. Um, it was seen as quite a step that the Anglicans, you know, they've been seeking to be ahead of the curve and progressive for a long time. Um, yeah. One of the points I want to draw your attention um, for the whole duration of the marriage or in an indefinite period of time. So it may be that you decide this month uh, it's not suitable for us to have a children and you decide next month it's not suitable for us to have a child. Um, that might be for your entire marriage. So the conditions that would make it unsuitable might in your case be your entire marriage. And that, that would still be faithful to what the church says about marriage being ordered to children. And be different from starting out marriage closed, kind of in your mindset to the thought of children. I think you could envisage a marriage where the couple started so poor that they kind of were intending this as their kind of probable long-term strategy for a significant period of time. But that's different from saying, and we never want children through our whole marriage. That's not the same as saying, okay, we know we're starting poor and limited, and so we are expecting, intending to be avoiding a child for a significant period of time. But if we can get out of the economic hole we're expecting to start in, we would want children. Thus, it is a marriage. Economic conditions is possibly the most obvious to point to. Psychological conditions, what might that Throwing out some possibilities. Maybe they're just so young that they aren't confident in being responsible enough to have a child and take care of it. Okay. There's like stress and anxiety issues that one or both of the parents have that's exacerbated by taking care of a newborn. And maybe they have children already and they can't handle the mental strain of dealing with another one at this moment. Or one of them is bipolar or you could imagine a whole string of mental illness conditions that would just 
quite clearly say, okay, we kind of like a child, but we know for us in the limits of our psychological condition, for when we can foresee it, another child would just not be responsible now. And, and we'd hope we'd get out of the, the bipolar state, but actually realistically considering that might be 20 years, the, the entire fertile period of our union. Um, physical conditions? There'd be lots in this category, but s some random things to throw out. Right, and there would be a number of conditions where the health of the woman would be endangered by becoming pregnant. Um, now, if her health is very seriously endangered, you might well consider that they might refrain from the act indefinitely, depending how what the risk factor is. But... Um, Rock climbing involves a serious risk of death, yeah? But rock climbing is among many sports that the church would, you know, we would, normal theological analysis, some element of risk is acceptable in sport, some element of risk is acceptable in life, and acceptable as a risk in getting pregnant. Um, a couple could look at that and say, in the context of our marriage, the marital embrace is so vital to us that we're going to take that risk. Um, and I think that would be an example where Janet Smith's point, the church does not give very precise, define very precisely. Different couples would kind of look at that differently. So we can see there's a whole large number of different reasons here. Eugenic. Now, Pius the uh, 11th, 12th is using the word eugenic. Um, to lots of people, people's mind, that instantly is conjuring up images of the Nazis when we use the word eugenic, but it was a much more mainstream concept and term of concern, what might be some valid factors in this regard, eugenic? Yes, yeah, so I've over the years known two different families where uh, there's in the couple a genetic condition such that there's, I don't know, maybe a one in four chance that the child born would have a very uh, crippling disability that would require a high level of continual care. Being in the position where they already had three children with that condition 
that would sound like eugenic. Uh, that as a uh, high possibility of the next child would be serious grounds for spacing uh, in this context. And you could imagine there'd be a way we might have hear people phrase that and say, well, that's anti-life or that's anti-disability. But the church does have that as one of the criterias to be thinking. You need to be responsible in your parenthood. Uh, are we able, in justice to our other children, in justice to this child who might be born, are we able to, to care in our situation right now? These would be reasons for seeking to space. Have you heard these before? Some? Um, okay. Any thoughts? Yeah, okay. And actually that happens. Um, you've already got 13 children. That's, and you might economically be able to afford it and other things, but just some, somehow the social dimension. Um, so that the word economic might not be, the, isn't the only grounds. Something in the social dynamic having another child now wouldn't be suitable. Um, I might speculate that being about to move country, move job, um, spacing, delaying would, to my mind, seem quite suitable, which is different from being close, never, um, just the next six months because of these various moves, these changes in draw, blah, 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 blah. Um, we're wanting a child, but spacing-wise, not suitable right now. That would be my speculation. Maybe you uh, suddenly become head of state and don't have time? Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, which isn't an economic question, because as president of the United States, you would have the money. Um, but would you be able to do justice to a child if one was just born to you? Then maybe not. Um, I think that'd be a valid question to be asking. But I think more than one answer could be given. Okay, now we want to move on to the question of. So we've made some introductory comments. We've noted on this page this what just causes mean. Um, what's the mechanism involved? What is natural family planning? So this is page three. Natural family planning. I say modern science enables a woman to chart her fertility through the different days of the month. And using the word month. I say, this does not depend on a regular 28-day month, but on observing symptoms. So quoting the Catechism, Daniel, can you read that quote to us? Periodic 
is in conformity with the objective criteria of morality. These methods respect the bodies of the spouses, encourage tenderness between them, and favor the education of an authentic freedom. So have you all heard of this phrase, charting, where a woman will have a chart of the month um, and it will note her symptoms different days and she'll be able with the chart to have an idea of what's likely to be changing soon, what definitely won't be changing for another two weeks. You know, the, the, the chart gives her an idea where things are heading. Um, now, many couples, she might make the measurement and he writes it on the chart as in a sense of this communication thing. Um, so charting. Charting fertility involves communication between the wife and husband. And I know communication obviously aids a marriage. It also involves growth in self-mastery and avoidance of self-seeking. So this is another important way to aids in marriage. Um, so that the man in particular, because we don't have good control of ourselves, um, by having to space through the month, um, has to control himself. He's got to be a master of himself in how he relates to his wife. Now the next one I say, there are many different scientific methods of charting fertility. See, the church does not endorse any, uh, though I say some specific diocese might for practical reasons. I list their eight methods. I say there might be more. Um, and various combinations, uh, basal body temperature, the Billings ovulation method, identifying the type of one's cervical mucus and a change in the sensation it produces with wetness or slipperiness. Um, the person I'm quoting there says, it's highly effective if taught and practiced correctly. Here in Ohio, the Creighton method combines mucus and other indicators. Um, I've known Billings methods, um, instructors, very critical of the Creighton method. You know how within the church, sometimes those battles can be the most fierce. Um, so, um, there are these, all these different scientific methods that approach it differently. Um, theologically, it's all the same. You are using science to measure, is she fertile, is she not fertile? Um, and I say various digital methods. So you can get various things we'll, that will do um, I'm not sure in this country which pharmacies sell them, um, but we'll just do a digital scan of the woman, um, which supposedly are not as reliable as the Billings or Creighton methods, um, but are, people do love things that are in a package and have a little button on them. Um, <laughs> Sorry? There are multiple apps for these. Yes, lots of apps. Um, and you can imagine this being a, a woman charting her symptoms and putting it on her app. Um, so I think you were half asking that as a joke, but it's, it is a serious thing and is 
I think for some people, the way to go, if everything else in your life is on your phone. Um, so my diocese, Plymouth, back in, in England, um, the diocese has uh, endorsed the Billings method in that we have um, Billings instructors in place across the diocese now. Not enough, you might, contrary to the comment on the first page, I'd want one in every parish, just so that if we're saying this is a matter of sin, this is something you need to, contraception is something you should not be doing, we should be making it possible for people to not use contraception. Um, but it's difficult to get adequately trained people um, if you're in a part of the world where most of your Catholic population is elderly, that also creates a problem. Um, you want to be taught this method, not by a woman who has used it for the last 40 years, but is now, um, well not 40 years, but um, now not fertile. That Two young women together kind of creates a dynamic of greater trust in these things. But where we are in my diocese, there kind of isn't at a practical level an alternative. So the diocese has just kind of made the Billings method the method. The risk with that is someone could, as a medical doctor, object to the Billings method and feel they were objecting to the church. And those aren't the same thing. Okay, we had this quote previously uh, from John Paul the Great. Um, David, could you read this block quote to us? The choice of... The choice of the natural rigor involves accepting the cycle of the person, that is the woman, and thereby accepting dialogue, reciprocal respect, shared responsibility, and self-control. To accept the cycle and to enter into dialogue means to recognize both the spiritual and corporal character of conjugal communion and to live personal love with its requirements of fidelity. In this context, the couple comes to experience how conjugal communion is enriched with those values of tenderness and affection which constitute the inner soul of human sexuality in its physical dimension also. In this way, sexuality is respected and promoted in its truly and fully human dimension and is never used as an object that, by breaking the personal unity of soul and body, strikes at God's creation itself at the level of the deepest interaction of nature and person. And I pluck out the phrase reciprocal respect, dialogue, shared responsibility, and self-control. So there's something in the relationship that changes with this being used. It's not just a random diktat uh, from some Vatican congregation saying, no, don't do that. Um, there's something in the relationship that changes in following this method. So I'm trying to give you here on, on one page something of a vision of method-wise what kind of is involved here without being overly specific in training in a particular method. I think Dr. Cahal will cover that 
Have you done the marriage course with him yet? I think that's one of the things he will look at in that course. Comments on this page? Over the page then. So this page, page four, is a copy of um, a handout I've given in various parishes I've been in, um, in the weekly newsletter when I've preached on contraception. This is what I've handed to my parishioners. Um, so there's an apologetic structure and tone here. Um, so, so the title of the, this page is The Promises of Contraception Have Failed. And I note first the left-hand column, what contraception promise? So I am so old that I can remember being in high school and contraception was taught to us as something new and various claims were made that you can still find in bits of old leaflets and literature if society goes down this bright new road, these wonderful things will happen. That there will be improved husband-wife relationships. That there will be less divorce because there'll be less family stress with less of those awkward children. That women will be freed from male domination. And that there will be less abortion and less teenage pregnancy. And you don't hear anybody making those claims today because that is clearly not the society we've created. Pius the, uh, Paul VI, when he came out with Humanity Vitae in 1968, he, in a very prophetic voice, and you may have read various articles that refer to him as a prophet in this regard, he warned that contraception would lead to, one, a barrier in the relationship between a husband and a wife. The condom barrier being kind of a symbol of something being between the two. He warned that there would be more divorce, more promiscuity, and less family stability, that there would be an increase in women being seen as sexual objects, and that there would be more abortion. And all of this at the time he was just mocked for. Um, because at that time it would have been hard to really imagine what society could end up like. And here was this thing that was more convenient. And everything, you know, the 60s and 70s, everything was about increasing convenience. You've now got your vacuum cleaner. Um, everything more convenient. And here the church is saying, oh, no, actually, here's a device you should not be using. Seeming as morally credible as telling people you shouldn't use a vacuum cleaner. It was just very contrary to the spirit of the age. I so say, what natural family planning achieves instead? Increased communication between a husband and a wife, less divorce, and respects a woman's bodily cycle and views her as a whole. Then say in italics and footnotes there are um, you can follow up more from studies Janet Smith refers to, though those are already somewhat dated, but say American studies have shown that the divorce rate among couples who use natural family planning 
is much less than the divorce rate among couples who use artificial contraception. These studies are not religion-based and include many non-Catholics who follow natural family planning fertility awareness methods. So one reason for this seems to be that NFP increases communication between a husband and a wife. So the American figures covering people of all religions and none, the divorce rates with the natural family planning are between two and 4%, whereas the divorce rates among those using artificial contraception is about 50%. So Catholics using artificial contraception have the same divorce rate as non-Catholics using artificial contraception. That that use of contraception seems to be more indicative of future divorce than what religion you are. Conversely, there are, you know, ecologically aware couples, women who don't want to be polluting their body with all of the artificial hormones and the pill and so forth. Um, there are people using these natural methods of spacing children for completely non-religious reasons. Uh, I don't know many people in this regard, but I do know some uh, on the other side of the pond. Um, and that it benefits them too in the relationship, the communication between the couple. So for the period of time immediately after Humana Vitae, um, I guess all the priests then must have, no, not all. You, just thinking there. Uh, so if you do, and do, I would suggest to you, ask some of the old priests you know, whether they're way out liberals or in some sense solid, um, ask them what the experience was like about, around Humana Vitae after the council. And whether, wherever they stood, um, they will describe it as a very difficult time and a huge amount of hostility from a huge number of parishioners frequently directed at the priest. And for a priest who is seeking to be faithful, kind of all he could say was, it's going to be more difficult for you, but this is the right thing to do. Whereas now, I would be arguing, we see in some of these statistics, it's, it's a different way of living, but it's not more difficult. If you choose the contraception route, you're just going to get other difficulties. Um, that the natural family planning, the periodic continence, the kind of requirement of self-mastery with that, yes, that is a certain type of difficulty, but it brings with it a whole bunch of benefits that actually means it's not true to say following the church's teaching is a harder way of life. It's just a different way of life, even at a practical level. Summarize in bold, I say the NFP contraception distinction, I say this might seem like a technical difference but the change made to the husband-wife relationship is significant and measurable, even at a statistical level. Have you read any of this articulated before? 
Um, one of the articles on sort of suggested reading, the vindication of Humana Vitae, um, so that was over a decade ago, but still relatively recent as generations pass, um, would be the most recent kind of comprehensive overview uh, I'd suggest to you. Um, looking back in time now, half a century on the position of Yanomi Vitae seems vindicated, not threatened. Um, and this does mean for you as future pastors, you have a duty, not an obedience to the church, but you have a duty to the couple for their sake to be articulating this to them, to say, okay, I hear what you, I know you hear what I'm saying, and this is the first time you've ever heard anyone say this to you, but I know right now you want to stay married and you want to do whatever that will take. One of the things I'm suggesting to you is there will be a higher likelihood of your staying together if you use this method. And I've required couples to see an NFP instructor. I have no way of, in a sense, in no way of guaranteeing they will follow that, but to at least require that as part of their preparation for marriage. So they at least have a glimpse of practically what's involved in that as part of their preparation for marriage. Summarizing at the bottom of the page there, I say, what is the moral difference between natural family planning and artificial contraception? I say, in contraception, the couple engage in an act that they have altered altered in a way that violates the inherent meaning of the sexual act, which is both unitive and procreative. Whereas in NFP, the couple either abstain from sexual intercourse or they engage in an unaltered act of sexual intercourse. In both cases, the acts they do engage in haven't been altered in any way. Now the next page, I'm just spending a page articulating what I just said in that sentence. So, page five here. Contraception versus natural family planning. The same intention, but a different means. Say, so not all means to avoid pregnancy are legitimate. Quoting the axiom from the Catechism and elsewhere, the end does not justify the means. So contraception avoids pregnancy by directly thwarting the procreative meaning of the act. It sees the procreative meaning of the act and directly thwarts it. Natural family planning, in contrast, does not change the nature of the act. Rather, it spaces the use of the marital act so that a couple only have sexual intercourse when they are not fertile. Doing this follows this phrase I quote from the Catechism, objective criteria. Uh, Tyler, can you read the next quote there? So this is um, the Catechism, which in parts is quoting Humana Vitae. Each and every marriage act must remain open for say to the transmission of life. This particular doctrine is founded on numerous occasions by the magisterium and based on the inseparable connection established by God, which man on his own initiative may not break between the unity of significance and the appropriate of significance, which are both inherent in marriage act. 
Okay, so what does that mean? So here I'm using the Latin phrase, per se destinatus. And in a sense, the apologetic of why it's sinful, contraception, we'll look at over the next three lectures. But the difference between these two is what I'm trying to introduce you to today. So, per se destinatus. So the Catechism quotes Humana Vitae using a technical term which is often poorly translated. So the word open might be mistaken to mean still intending a child or a possible child. That would be, as I say here, a subjective attitude, an attitude in you. We're open to having a child. Maybe there'll be a child, maybe there won't. We're open to that. Per se destinatus is something else, implies an objective inherent ordering, i.e. not just a subjective attitude. So the action itself is ordered to something or not. The example Janet Smith gives is a blind eye. She says a blind eye is still ordered to sight. Blinding yourself attacks the meaning of the eye, whereas using a partially working eye has not caused the partial function. Similarly, and here uh, I say, sexual intercourse on a day when you are not fertile engages the unitive meaning of the act, even while knowing that the procreative meaning is not being realized. So you've been charting fertility, you know today is an infertile day, you know therefore the procreative meaning will not be actualized, but the meaning is still kind of present in the act. What will be actualized is the unitive dimension. Christopher, can you read that quote? This is from um, a philosopher, Elizabeth Anscombe, who wrote early and very significantly on this point. For you use the rhythm method not just by having intercourse now, but by not having it next week, say. And not having it next week isn't something that does something to today's intercourse to turn it into an infernal act. Today's intercourse is an ordinary act of intercourse, an ordinary marriage act. Okay, let's pause there a second. Today's intercourse is an ordinary act of intercourse, an ordinary marriage act. You know it's infertile, but you've not done anything to the act. It still remains just a normal marriage act. Changing the spacing of it does not change the act. This day or that day doesn't change the act. It just changes whether you know it's going to be fertile or not fertile. Whereas putting on a condom changes what the act is in itself. Smith's analogy, a blind eye is still ordered to sight, even though it's blind. And marriage act on an infertile day is still ordered to life even though it's not going to be fertile.
So in short, I say, it can be morally permissible to seek one end, union, while not actualizing the other end, procreative. It is not morally permissible to directly thwart one end, i.e. to directly thwart the procreative meaning inherent in the marital act. Now, do we all see on one level this seems like a very technical point? But sometimes small differences have big consequences. Um, changing the spacing of the act, it's still the same act on those different days. And to choose not to have sex today doesn't change the act when you do engage with it next week when she's infertile. Over the page. So I say we will spell this out more the next couple of weeks. So repeating in a sense, rephrasing the question, why is artificial contraception a sin? So contraception is a sin because it directly opposes one of the God-given meanings of the sexual act. So both marriage and sex have a meaning that exists before a couple get married and before they engage in the act proper to marriage, namely sex. That God has given us this great gift and he intends us to use it in accordance with the purposes he has established in it. Both marriage and sex are ordered to two things, union and procreation. Concerning union, I say to seek sex without lifelong union is to oppose the unity of purpose God has established in sex. Concerning procreation, now note these three next three steps. This is pretty important. I say first, not every marriage bears fruit in children but every marriage remains ordered toward children. And a marriage that intended never to have children would be seriously lacking. Similarly, not every marriage act, so not every marriage automatically bears children. Not every marriage act leads to children, but every sexual act remains ordered to children. And to directly oppose the procreative meaning by artificial contraception is to directly violate the meaning of the act, to directly violate the gift of sex that God has given. In contrast, what is natural family planning? I say in NFP, a couple seek to postpone or avoid pregnancy, but seek to achieve this by using a method that respects the nature of the marriage act. Whereas contraception changes the marital act by an action that directly renders it infertile. In natural family planning, a couple do not directly change the act itself. In NFP, a couple abstain from sex when the wife is fertile and enjoy the marital embrace when she is not. This involves the couple charting the medical signs that indicate her fertility.
I'm not going to go through with you, but I have on page seven got a summary of the Billings methodology. This was um, another sheet I handed out in different parishes. Um, The Billings people would say, among other things, even if a woman has an irregular cycle, that's not 28 days every month or varies, or that actually she can monitor her fertility regardless. Um, page eight, there's a list there of different methods and statistics. Almost all of those methods are artificial methods and you can um, you know the distinction between perfect use statistics and actual use statistics so kind of in the laboratory theoretically if you follow the method there will be this percentage of reliability but people as they use a particular method never use it quite the way the lab scientists say. So they're feeling a bit of wild, a little wild tonight, and actually, even though the chart says no, they go for it. Um, because in real life, people don't follow exactly, or a significant number of people don't. That's called actual use methods. So what's the reliability? Um, real use statistics would be including those sorts of scenarios. And the article that's that page is summarizing natural family planning, the best worst thing ever, is kind of mocking how on one level difficult, complicated, uh, one of her particular complaints is how um, they're just not supported by the church um, all alone in your typical parish um, but that it's still somehow the best thing ever in terms of it aiding the relationship of the couple okay what have we done today today has been a very specific focus trying to articulate how natural family planning is not the same thing as contraception. Trying to indicate that although marriage is ordered to children in a responsible way, that a couple need to be asking themselves, using this phrase from Janet Smith, justice, in a question of justice, should we be seeking a child now? Um, that the church gives various criteria that are quite expansive, um, just reasons, physical, economic, psychological, social. Um, contraception is seeking the same intention, but is doing something different. It's directly thwarting one of the meanings of the act. Whereas natural family planning, it's still the normal act, but just spaced in when you engage in it. And that changes how the couple relate to each other. All right, in our next couple lectures, we're going to first look at an author called Janet Smith. Um, her
her argument about why contraception is wrong. We're then going to look at uh, Germaine Griset, who is not an author I follow or I'm a fan of, but I want on one level you to see that there's more than one argument to the same conclusion, that contraception is wrong. Um, but also historically, Griset was just a very influential figure, so you should have some contact with him directly.